Now, brothers and sisters, as we come to God's word, we are yet again in the book of Numbers. And so I'll ask you to turn to the fourth book in your Bibles from the beginning. Numbers chapter 25 is where we're at. Numbers chapter 25 this week, where we look at a very interesting story that I'm titling Zealous for God's Honor. It's the title of the the sermon today, Zealous with a Z, Zealous for God's Honor. Now, as you're turning there, and I, I encourage you to take out a Bible yourself and to look at the text with me and engage with it with me visually there in your living rooms or wherever you might be. But I ask the question, what does it mean to be zealous? It's the title of the message today, but it's not a word that we use in our everyday lives, right? Zealous, what does that mean? Well, to have zeal or to be zealous means to have an intense passion or perhaps like you might say a fire in your gut for something, for a cause, for a person, for a goal even, an intense passion or a fire in your gut, right? We might think about someone like Michael Jordan. You ever watch the last dance in these past few weeks? Right? Michael Jordan had an intense zeal or passion to be the best, to be better than everybody else. It consumed him, right? You know, there's often a question of whether or not it consumed him too much, but he had a zeal to be the absolute best. You might think of someone on the other side of the coin, Mother Teresa, who spent her entire life devoted to helping the poor. That's zeal. She was zealous her entire life for helping the poor. Or you might think of the zeal of politics. How many people in politics or in the media do you see who are zealous for promoting their party's agenda at all times and discrediting anyone on the other side and what they stand for, right? And so right or wrong, those people are zealous. They are consumed by a zeal for a certain thing. And this, I hope, gives you an idea of what we're talking about when we say zealous this morning because we're going to use that word. And the title, indeed, of the message is Zealous for God's Honor. So today, we're looking at a story of a man who was zealous for the honor of God. And his name is Phineas. And here's his story in Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down to verse 11. Follow along with me in your copy of the text. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You might have a different version. If you do, words here or there might be different, but the the text is going to be the same on the whole. 25 verse 1, the word of the Lord says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel." And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, saw this, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, 
those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Now, lots to look at in our text this morning, but before we actually get into the nuts and bolts of it, I want to point out to you the nature of this text, okay? We're looking at a text today where God commends someone for killing two people. Now, does that make you uncomfortable? God is holding up Phineas as an example of someone to admire. Does that rub you the wrong way? You see, one important point here, before we even get into the text itself, is that we don't shy away from Bible passages just because they're hard, right? This is a hard passage, right? It's going to rub some of us the wrong way. It's going to make us uncomfortable in a sense. And we we don't fully understand it, many of us, on a first reading. But just because a passage makes us uncomfortable or rubs us the wrong way doesn't mean we shy away from it. Doesn't mean we avoid it or we turn away from it. No, We face up to everything in the Bible because everything in the Bible is God's word. And what do we know about God? Well, God is good all the time. God is good and good only. Everything he does, everything he says is good. And God is never wrong in any of his judgments, in anything that he says. He's never wrong. And so if we know that about God and we know that the entire Bible is God-breathed, straight from the mouth of God, And we come to a passage like this that we don't understand or that rubs us the wrong way. Well, the problem then is not with Scripture or with God himself. The problem is with us, right? If we don't understand something or something makes us uncomfortable or it seems wrong to us, the problem is not with Scripture or with God. The problem is with us. Think about it. As finite human beings, as sinful human beings... We're not infinite, we're finite, we're sinful. We should expect God to confuse us or make us uncomfortable at times. As you read through the Bible, you should expect that. I mean, he's God. We are human beings. We should expect at times to be made uncomfortable. At times, we should expect to be confused. And so I want you to see that as we come to this passage. It's important for us to note we don't shy away from passages like this. We face them head on and we ask What do you have for me here? God, help me to understand. Now, two important lessons that I want us to walk away from here today. We're going to look at two different parts of this text, so to speak. Number one, we're going to look at the danger of sexual immorality, which is what brought this whole episode about. The danger of sexual immorality. And then number two, the zeal of Phineas himself specifically. So number one, the danger of sexual immorality. I want you to see in our passage how sexual immorality, that personal specific sin, leads the people into idolatry. Sexual immorality leads the people into idolatry. Now, do you remember last week? Do you remember Balaam, that character from last week's story, Numbers 22 through 24? Balaam was a sorcerer, a practitioner of divination. right? And Balaam... Last week figured out sorcery is not going to work to defeat the people of Israel. Balaam and the king of Moab, Balak, they figured out sorcery is not going to work. And so we've got, to, we've got to try something else. And Balaam comes up with a better plan and suggests a better plan to the king of Moab. He suggests that Balak take a different approach, sexual immorality. 
Instead of sorcery in the spiritual world, let's go with sexual immorality. Why don't you send women to go and lead the men of Israel astray? All right, and, and this is not suggesting that only women lead men astray sexually. The flip side happens numerous times, even in Scripture. But, but you might be saying, as I'm saying this, wait a second, there's nothing about Balaam here in the text. Are you just pulling this out of thin air, John? And you should be asking that question because you should never allow a preacher to stand here and tell you something that you can't actually see in the text, right? But we do see this later on in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, refers back to this incident here in chapter 25. And it says this, Numbers 31, 16, it says, Behold, these, those Moabites, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. It said, on Balaam's advice. And so Balaam says, okay, sorcery is not working. Let's try sexual immorality. Now, I point this out to show you this is exactly what Satan is doing in America today. It's exactly what Satan is doing in America today. Think about it. Let's get people to forget about the supernatural. Let's get people to deny that it even exists, the supernatural world, this good and evil, angels and demons kind of world, God and Satan. Let's get people to just deny that that even exists. And then let's attack sexuality. Let's attack purity. And boy, has that proved to be an effective strategy to lead people astray, has it not? What an effective strategy. So Satan is doing the same thing today that Balaam was suggesting back then. Now, I want you to look back at verse 1 with me because I want to show you a play on words here in verse 1 in the text. In verse 1, it says, The people began, the people of Israel, began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Your translation might say to practice sexual immorality. But there's two things going on here. It's a double meaning with this word, all right? The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, right? First, there's sexual immorality, obviously, yes, all right? There's sexual immorality. And we need to point out here, this is not an argument against interracial relationships, okay? Some people will mistakenly claim that you can find evidence in the Old Testament that interracial marriage is a sin. It's not what's going on here. It's not interracial relationships that is the problem. It's interreligious relationships, okay? But I want you to notice how the sexual immorality leads them into idolatry. Right? And so in verse 1, when it says they begin to whore with the daughters of Moab, they're not just dabbling in sexual immorality. They're dabbling in idolatry. So look at verses 2 and 3. These invited the people, and they invited the Israelites to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You see, the Bible often uses the language of sexual unfaithfulness to describe idolatry. The Bible often uses that language. And so when people forsake God for idols and for false gods, God will say they're cheating on him. God will say that he's their husband and they are prostituting themselves out. They're being spiritually promiscuous, so to speak. And so there's this inherent connection between sexual immorality on the one hand and idolatry on the other and the lesson that I want you to see here is if we do not forsake sexual immorality in our lives, it will lead us into idolatry. It will lead us into worshiping something other than God. 
And so in light of that, in light of that, it's so very important to guard your heart. Guard your heart, brothers and sisters. Guard your eyes. Guard your steps. Guard yourself against sexual immorality. Do everything you can to keep yourself from it. Be vigilant with what comes into your mind and into your eyes. Be vigilant with your thoughts and even your daydreams. Be vigilant with them because this is such a danger and it can lead us away from God into idolatry. The Bible says flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Be like Joseph. If you remember Joseph, when Potiphar's wife grabbed him and said, come to bed with me, he ran away and even left his cloak. It didn't matter because he's got to get away from any possibility of sexual immorality. Don't flirt with sexual sin, brothers and sisters. Don't flirt with this. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Right? Do you think you can carry around fire and not get burned? We sometimes have this idea that we can love God and yet dabble in sexual immorality and, and manage it. And keep it at bay. And we think it's not going to affect our relationship with God. Friends, you are deceiving yourselves if you are thinking that way. You are deceiving yourself. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. You are mocking God if you think you will not reap what you are sowing. If you think you are the exception to all the biblical rules, no, I can keep this sexual immorality and still love God. I can manage this lion over here and be safe from it. You're deceiving yourself. God cannot be mocked. That's mocking God, thinking you're the exception to the rule that whatever you sow, you reap. And so let me exhort you, let me plead with you this morning. If you feel you are playing with fire, if you feel you're playing with fire in your life, if you are looking at pornography, if you are walking down a road that you know is going to lead to adultery, or if you have committed adultery already, if you have secret sexual sin, if you are feeling drawn to movies and websites that you shouldn't be looking at, The first step is to confess it to God. But you don't just have to confess it to God. You need to confess it to someone else. You need to confess to a brother or sister in Christ that you trust. I'm here to tell each and every one of you, I am here for that. That's, That's part of my job before the Lord as a pastor. If you need to confess to someone something that you've never confessed before, if you need to have a safe, confidential conversation about your sin that you've been hiding, you can come to me with that. Right? We can meet together and practice social distancing, yeah, yeah. But we can meet together and, and talk about that. And I'm here to tell you, you must confess. You must confess, not just to God, but to someone else, or you will never defeat this. If you do not confess, you will never defeat it. And unless you confess, it will lead you into idolatry. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot play with fire and not be burned. You cannot mock God. Unless you confess this, it will lead you into idolatry. It will lead you away from God, and eventually it will lead you to hell. 
And so turn, brothers and sisters, turn before it is too late. Sexual immorality, our text is telling us here, sexual immorality leads us to idolatry, to worshiping something other than God. Now, I also want us to see this morning the zeal of Phineas himself, specifically the zeal of Phineas. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. And thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. I want you to see the serious nature of what is going on here. Okay, This is not simply a matter of someone going to put someone else to death because they don't like them. I want you to see the serious nature of what's happening. The people have just been ordered by God to put to death some of their fellow Israelites because of idolatry. And as they're thinking about what has happened, as they're grieving over the sin of their fellow Israelites, they're weeping. In the sight of them all, as they're weeping, comes this man and this foreign woman, arm in arm, laughing, carousing, unashamed, and goes right into the tent, unashamedly in the sight of them all, and everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone knows what's about to happen. It's brazen. The Israelite man is completely unashamed at the sheer blasphemy of his actions here. And so Phineas takes a spear and goes in and puts both of them to death. Now, interestingly enough, when you get into the Hebrew, all right, the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language. When you get into the Hebrew of this chapter, in verse 8, it says he goes in to them, he goes after them into the chamber, or your translation might say into the tent. And then that same word for chamber or tent is used when the narrator tells us where he stabbed them. It says he stabbed the woman through her belly. But that word for belly right there is the same word, the same exact Hebrew word for chamber or tent. And so it's as if God is saying they went into the place where intimate things happen and Phineas stabbed her in the place where intimate things happen. It's almost like a the punishment fits the crime type of thing. And God has been doing that kind of thing throughout the book of Numbers we've seen. The punishment fits the crime. It's very appropriate according to whatever sin the people have committed. But Phineas, notice Phineas, he cares so deeply and passionately that God is honored, that his name is hallowed. And when someone dishonors God, Phineas feels it himself. It's not like God just feels it. Phineas feels it. That's zeal for God's honor. Phineas feels it when someone else dishonors God. Indeed, God cares deeply about his honor. God cares deeply about his honor and his glory. If you read through the Old Testament, you cannot fail to miss this, that God cares deeply about his honor and his glory and his name being hallowed. And in verse 11, look what God says about Phineas. Verse 11, it says, Phineas, and this is God talking, it says, he was jealous with my jealousy among them. Jealous with my jealousy. In the Robert Alter's great Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, it says he was zealous or he zealously acted for my zeal. And so let's ask ask ourselves this morning. Ask yourself this morning. Are we jealous with God's jealousy? Do we have zeal, God's zeal, for God's honor among ourselves and among other people? 
Do we hate sin like God does? Are we angered when we see others or even ourselves demeaning the glory of God? Yeah, sure, you you might get angry when people demean your glory, right? But that's sinful anger. Do you get angry in your heart? Does a fire rise up in you when you see people demeaning the glory of God? What about when we see others or even ourselves lifting things above God in idolatry? Putting things in a more prominent, important place than God. When we see others or ourselves putting themselves and their desires before God. Does that bother us? Are we zealous for God's honor? Now, perhaps this morning, you're being brutally honest with yourself. And let me commend you for that. But perhaps you're being brutally honest with yourself and you're saying, I'm not like that. I don't feel that. I don't feel this zeal for God, this, this, this fire inside of me that comes up when someone dishonors God. Well, let me give you one encouragement and then one exhortation there. The encouragement, first of all, if you are a Christian, if you're genuinely a Christian, and this doesn't apply to everyone, only those who are followers of Jesus, who have given their lives to Christ, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the Holy Spirit, over time, helps us to feel what God feels. Right? This is part of sanctification and holiness. The Holy Spirit, as you grow in Christ, the Holy Spirit will help you more and more to feel what God feels. To hate what He hates. To be disgusted at the things that disgust God. To love what God loves. And to have compassion for those whom God has compassion for. You see, if you follow the ways of the world, they won't teach you that. They'll teach you the exact opposite. They'll get you to try to feel the opposite of that. And so it takes a miraculous work of the Spirit in our hearts to get us to feel what God feels. Because naturally, on our own, we don't feel what God feels. See, the world sees it as a value to react softly to sin. Indeed, sometimes the world sees it as a value to celebrate sin, or at the very least, to refuse to condemn it. Right? The world looks down on the things that God values. So to the world, if you're gentle or honest, that means you're weak. To the world, if you're seeking sexual purity or you don't indulge in certain kinds of entertainment, that means you're a prude. To the world, if you think there's such a thing as absolute truth, that means you're arrogant and ignorant. Right? And so the world will not lead you to feel what God feels. This is not a natural thing. It takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But if you are genuinely a Christian this morning, the Holy Spirit will, over time, help you to feel what God feels as you grow in Christ. But again, let me, let me give you an encouragement, not just, or an exhortation, not just an encouragement. All right? to, to do this, to allow this to happen, you have to be putting yourself before God's throne constantly. You have to be what Scripture calls abiding with Christ. And what I mean by that is, we have to be practicing spiritual disciplines to remain close to God and cultivate our relationship and grow in Christ so that the Holy Spirit can work on us in that way. And so, as you think about maybe your desire to feel what God feels, but you don't feel it yet, spend time every day in the Word and in prayer cultivating your relationship with God. And as you do over time, the Holy Spirit will help you to feel what God feels. Spend time around other believers that spur you on toward love and good deeds, as Hebrews chapter 10 talks about. 
fellowshipping with other Christians, spending time with other people who you can see they know God. They've spent time with Jesus. They feel what God feels. And over the course of time, the Holy Spirit inside of you will help you to feel what God feels. We have to abide in Christ. We have to put ourselves before the throne of God, so to speak, so that he can work on us in that way. All right? Growing in Christ, becoming more and more holy means feeling what God feels. Hating what he hates, loving what he loves. But we also, when we look at our text this morning, we also need to ask ourselves, how do we have the zeal of Phineas without it turning into a sinful hatred of others? Right? How do we have the zeal of Phineas without it turning into a sinful hatred of others? If Phineas is a moral example here, then you can see how some could read this text and take it and twist it. And the next thing you know, we have a religion that looks a lot like Islamic terrorism, murder in the name of God. Right? So is it okay for you to murder the next person that you see blaspheming the name of God? No, absolutely not. But as I say that, you might be asking, well, okay, then what's the difference? What's the difference between Phineas here in Numbers 25 and us today if God is commending what Phineas did and we're not supposed to do anything like that today? What's the difference? Well, first, you need to know this. Israel, the nation of Israel, was a theocracy. And we today live in a democratic republic. What I mean by that is Israel was a nation completely governed by God in every way, even in ways that we are not governed by God today, that God does not expect us to be governed by him today. Here's what I mean. Israel was a wandering nation in the, the wilderness, in the desert at this time. They didn't have any government rulers. Right? They didn't have any system of court law, so to speak. They didn't have any law enforcement like we do today. They didn't have any of that stuff. And so all their rules came directly from God through Moses, and all of those rules were enforced by Moses or by the leaders of each clan or by God himself. Okay. Now contrast that with today in America. Today in our land, morality is enforced by the government and by the police. And God has ordained it to be so if you read Romans chapter 13, among other places in Scripture. And so citizens like you or I should never take capital punishment into our own hands. Let me repeat that, especially in light of some of the things that have happened in our culture in recent days. Citizens like you or I should never take capital punishment into our own hands. The government however, can rightly put someone to death for a moral crime. God has given that power to the government. You can read that in things like Romans 13. All right, And so there's a, a difference there in the place that we live, in the place that the Israelites lived, even a difference that God has ordained to be a difference if you read through your New Testament. Now second, we have New Testament, New Covenant guidelines on how to defend God's honor that explicitly tell us it's not putting people to death like they did in the theocracy nation of Israel. And we have New Testament, New Covenant guidelines on how to defend God's honor. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, there is a man in a horrendous sin, unrepentant, horrendous sin. You can read it for yourself. And Paul tells the Corinthians to put him out of the church, to excommunicate him, not to put him to death, but to put him out of the church. And he says that our job as Christians, as part of local bodies of Christ, our jobs are to judge those inside of our churches, not to judge those outside. All right? 
We're not to judge those outside the church. That's up to the state and the federal governments. We can only judge those inside the church, and even then, the practice of church discipline looks much different from the discipline that the Lord had Phineas enact here in Numbers 25 and in other places in the Old Testament where people were put to death for certain sins. And so let's not get this twisted and turn it into something it was never meant to be. This text, this passage, is not an opening of the door to vigilante justice. Okay, It's not what we're getting from this text. The takeaways here are about the dangers of sexual immorality and the zeal that we should all have for the honor of the Lord. Okay, So it's important that we analyze that because this is a hard text to understand, especially in modern times. Now, we also need to see here, though, That while zeal is so important for God, zeal must be coupled with a knowledge of the truth. With a knowledge of the truth of how God has revealed himself. Because zeal without knowledge is dangerous. We see this throughout scripture. For instance, in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1, Paul's talking about the Jews. And he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul's saying the Jews have a zeal for God, but it's leading them away from God because it's not coupled with an accurate knowledge of God. Think about Paul, the man who wrote that. He used to be a Pharisee, right? We read about this in the New Testament. Paul used to drag Christians out of their homes and throw them in jail for following Jesus. Paul used to preside over the executions of people that they were putting to death for following Jesus. You see, Paul thought he was doing the Lord's work. He had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. And it turns out he was actually persecuting Jesus himself and God's children when he thought he was doing the work of the Lord. And so this is why, brothers and sisters, it's so important for us to know our Bibles It's so important for us to know our Bibles. There are Christian hate groups out there that get on their megaphones and condemn people to hell with just a look and a snap judgment because they have missed the overwhelming picture in Scripture of God's gentleness and compassion towards sinners. There are others who make the opposite error and overemphasize God's love but completely leave out His zeal for holiness and His hatred towards sin. It's a zeal without accurate knowledge of who God has revealed himself to be. Some, still others, promote what John MacArthur used to call charismatic chaos. Their zeal turns into out-of-control church services because they've missed the parts of the New Testament that tell us God puts a high value on order and propriety. And so zeal without knowledge is dangerous and it will lead you astray. It's not just zeal we're after. It's not just passion we're after. Those things are good. right? You need to have zeal. You need to have passion in loving and following the Lord. But if you have that zeal and that passion without also an accurate knowledge of the truth as God has revealed himself, that zeal and that passion, Satan will use it and Satan will twist it to lead you astray off the biblical path and eventually into sin and leading others into sin. And so know your Bibles Know what God has said about himself and his ways. And don't just know it for yourself. Teach it to your children and to your grandchildren. Did you notice in our text, in verse, what is it, 7, that Phineas is the grandson of Aaron? Did you see that? Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest. This is Moses' brother, the first high priest. 
It seems as though Aaron has taught his son and his grandson well. And this would make sense because Aaron, previously in his life, lost two of his sons in Leviticus chapter 10, who approached God in the wrong way. In their ignorance, in ministering before the Lord, in their ignorance, they lost their lives. And so you can see how Aaron would take pains to teach the ways of the Lord and the truth of the Lord to his sons. It's not just enough to have zeal for God. It's got to be a zeal with an accurate knowledge of God, working together. And so don't just assume, brothers and sisters, don't just assume that your children or your grandchildren are going to know God and his ways because you bring them to church. Don't just assume that. Teach them yourselves. Teach them your ways or teach them God's ways. Now, finally, and very briefly, I want to show you how ultimately Phineas points us to Christ. We've seen this throughout the book of Numbers, haven't we? Jesus is all over the place here because Jesus has been there from the beginning. But Phineas points us forward to Christ in two ways, very briefly here. One, who is our ultimate example of zeal for God's honor? Who's our ultimate example of zeal for God's honor? Well, think about Jesus walking into the temple seeing the money changers, seeing those selling animals and defrauding those that they were working with. And Jesus sits down in his anger and makes a whip out of cords and then stands up and flips over the money changers' tables. He whips and drives out the animals and the money changers and those selling. And he says, do not turn my father's house into a marketplace. And as he was doing so, Scripture tells us the disciples saw it and realized in the moment he was fulfilling Psalm 69.9. He was the fulfillment of Psalm 69.9, which says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And so Phineas, in his zeal for God's honor, points us forward to the one who has the ultimate zeal for God's honor. Jesus, right? But not only that, there's a second way that Phineas points us to Jesus. Look at verse 11. It says in verse 11, God says, Phineas has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. Turned back God's wrath so that God did not consume the people of Israel in his jealousy. Phineas, turning back God's wrath due to his zeal, points us forward to the one who would ultimately turn back God's wrath from us due to his zeal. His love for God's honor, his love for God's glory, and his desire to see God save sinners. Jesus on the cross turns God's wrath away from us who deserved it, who deserved to be under the wrath of God, so that God's wrath would not consume us for all eternity. I cannot stop thanking the Lord for saving me from his own wrath. Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I wouldn't be consumed by the wrath of the Lord for all eternity. Phineas points us forward to Jesus, the one who would ultimately save us from the wrath of God by turning it aside and bringing it upon himself. Jesus brought the wrath of God upon himself, voluntarily took it, which is a sentence worse than death. We could never imagine the worst torture that the world has ever conceived could never come close to the spiritual agony that Jesus experienced on the cross. The wrath of God, the weight of the sins of the world on him so that we could be forgiven, 
so that we would not be consumed by the wrath of God in eternity.